Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello. Hello, Ashley. (laughs) Are you a British aristocrat? (laughs) I'm something. (laughs) No, I just sounded snobby. Hey, Ash, what's up, girl? (laughs) How you doing, boo? More like you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> cool. When you want to shut down conversation and get to the good stuff. I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Proceed. Um, so I am doing the story of Colleen Stan. It's a kidnapping survival story. Okay. And I need to give a big warning at the beginning of this. If you don't already know this story, I want everyone to understand in advance, this is one of the darkest that we have ever covered and it's Ooh. really, really, really hard to digest. There are very intense moments of torture and abuse, and this really, just because you're into true crime does not mean that you are going to like this story. It so very it, triggering. It just might not be for everybody, so you've been warned. Warning. I got all of my information from a documentary titled Colleen Stan, The Girl in the Box, which was directed by Sean Terrell. Colleen Stan was born December 31st, 1956, so she's a Capricorn. Capricorn. She grew up in Riverside, California. Uh, She had two sisters and many step-siblings, and she was really close to all of them. And uh, she was also very close to her dad, Jack. Colleen got married right out of high school, but they divorced like a year later. So she was kind of a free spirit. This was the 1970s, so she kind of fell into that hippie category. She didn't have a plan or any idea like what she wanted to do with her life at that point. She was very much like... Living one day at a time, like exploring what each new day brings to me kind of thing. A gypsy soul. (laughs) Yeah. So when some of her friends invited her to move with them on a whim from Riverside to Eugene, Oregon, she was like, okay, sure, why not? So I went to college, baby. Yeah. So she was just going to go. Yeah. (laughs) Not with a a college plan. (laughs) Oh, Eugene, huh? Interesting selection. So she's living with some of her girlfriends in Eugene. She's having fun and is really enjoying her new life. And one of her close friends lived in a place called Westwood, California. It's located like very, very northern California. Um, It's roughly 400 miles south of Eugene. Okay. On May 19th, 1977, Colleen is 20 years old and she wanted to surprise this friend who lives in Westwood for her birthday. But Colleen didn't have a car or very much money. And hitchhiking was a very common form of transportation back then. Colleen would actually hitchhike so regularly that she felt really confident doing it. She was very selective about who she accepted rides from. And so far, she'd never had a bad experience. So it only takes one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. 
She hitchhiked to Red Bluff, California. So she had to find a new ride to take her the rest of the way, which was like 80 miles. She was standing on Antelope Boulevard when the first car pulled over. It was a bunch of young dudes who looked her up and down flirtatiously. And they were like, oh, yeah, we'll take you wherever you want to go. So she rolls her eyes and is like, no, thank you. (laughs) Not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And she sends them along. The next car to stop was a couple. But when they heard her destination, they were like, oh, sorry, we're not going that far. And she's like, "Okay." So they move along. She tries again. The third car to pull up had a young couple with an infant, and they said that they were going in that direction and would be happy to drive her. She assessed the situation and concluded they seemed safe, so she got in the car. They're a few miles into this drive, and Colleen looks up and realizes that the man keeps looking at her in the rearview mirror as he drives, but like suggestively, like he's checking her out kind of thing. And she said there was just something about it. It wasn't as simple as him just checking her out. It really sent a chill down her spine, but she was just like, whatever, he's, whatever, he's a slime, whatever. They stop for gas and Colleen gets out to use the bathroom. She's in there by herself and it's one of those like single person bathrooms. So she's, she's literally locked inside this room by herself. Mm-hmm. She's washing her hands and all of a sudden she hears a voice say to her, jump out of the window, run as fast as you can and don't look back. She said it was like, it was so loud and distinct. It was startling as if someone was like in the room with her, but she was like, you know, no one's there. Obviously she heard this in her mind essentially. And she was someone warning. I literally just got the worst chills everywhere. So she's like, that's crazy. Everything's fine. Just go back to the car. You're fine. You're going to be there soon. So it was a the, gut feeling. That it was, was a, it was a gut feeling, but she said she heard these distinct words. It was so yeah. distinct, but she just ignored she, it. She wrote it off. She goes back out. She gets in the car and she notices there's a wooden box on the seat next to her that hadn't been there before. But I mean, it's it's just a box. So she didn't really think anything of it. The couple starts to chatter up as they continue driving, asking her lots of questions. How old is she? Where is she from? Is she close to her family? Who is she going to see? Are they expecting you? That sort of thing. And you could argue, which she did in her mind, that this couple is just making conversation. She's a guest in their car. She mm-hmm. needs to be polite. They've got a long, you know, 80 mile drive. So you might as well be sitting and chatting. But she didn't ask them anything. She didn't even ask what their names were. So it was a very one-sided line of questioning. And then they asked, we want to stop off to do some sightseeing. We want to see these caves on our way. Are you comfortable with that? And she was like thinking to herself, I didn't see any signs for any sightseeing caves, but obviously they know the area better. And who was she to say no? So she was like, okay, sure. And the fact that they asked permission would then imply safety. And the fact there's a woman there, you would think- With an infant. It's like, we're fine. I know. She assessed the situation and she felt comfortable getting in the car. Saying yes. So they pull off down a dirt road and there is no one around, no houses, no cars, no pedestrians, no tourists looking for these supposed caves. They pull over in a wooded area and Colleen uh, stays in the car. The couple gets out and she's she's watching the woman walk towards a small stream and sit down. She starts playing in the water with her baby. And then suddenly the man yanks her door open. He pushes his way into the car next to her and holds a huge hunting knife to her throat. And he tells her to sit still. He pulls her hands behind her back and handcuffs them. Then he grabs the box and he flips it around so she can see what it is. It's a box roughly the size of a human head, a little bit larger. Mm -hmm. It's got a huge hole on one side and metal clasps to open and close it. 
So if you open it and you make it lay flat, it's like one of those double-sided suitcases. It's full of foam and it looks like it's straight out of a horror movie. He asks her if she's going to comply and- What is she (laughs) supposed to do? Of course she says yes, because what is she supposed to do? He then pulls out a very scary looking leather gag. It's very bondage looking. It's like if you took a piece of leather and you put it over your mouth and your jaw Mm -hmm. and then it gets cinched up tight underneath. Yeah. And then there's like a piece of leather that goes up over her head, Mm -hmm. you know, but splits at the nose so she can breathe through it. You know, it's like that. So he puts this on her, he tightens it, and then he puts the wooden box over her head and clamps it shut. I just want to show you a photo of the leather strap and the box because I really want you to have it in your mind when you listen to all of this. I already do, but I feel like it might make it I don't think you do. (laughs) So that's what it looks like closed. It's like a torture chamber. This is what it looks like open. What? I don't even understand what I'm looking at. It looks like the inside of a mattress. Like it looks. It's, it, it, lo- it sort of looks like it's a, it's a square box, a little larger than a human yeah. adult head. And there's a hole in it. But it also has like almost a Russian doll effect of smaller boxes within. Yeah. And it's full of like foam. It's like lots of foam. And it's, it's designed so that noise does not escape it. I was picturing like an egg crate, like the foam pad looking things like instead of recording studios or no. whatever like that's what i was picturing on the inside no. so something much much it's more like fab- it's like r- fabric and like foam that's just shoved in to make it noise canceling noise canceling yeah it's just, just awful so he puts that over her head he makes her lay down and he unrolls her sleeping bag and covers her body with it the woman and her baby get back in the car and she has no reaction to what the man had just done and they drive off, and then they end up driving for hours. Colleen can barely breathe. Yeah. There's so much foam and fabric shoved into this box that it's it's so tightly fitting. Literally, the air that is coming through is through this tiny slit around her neck. So she's trying not to gasp for air, but she can't breathe either. She's suffocating, ultimately. Then suddenly, the car stopped. The man is removing her from the car and guiding her inside of what seems like a house. He took the box off, but replaced it with a blindfold so that she couldn't see anything. But she could see like through the little slit at the bottom. Okay. So she could see kind of that uh, he walked her through what looked like a kitchen and then past a bathroom and then downstairs into a dark, dank basement. The man removed her handcuffs and then removed one article of clothing at a time. Once she was fully nude, he placed her wrist into restraints so that they were pulled up above her body and out. Mm-hmm. And then without warning, he kicked the thing she was standing on and she's now hanging in midair by her wrists. Colleen said this part hanging by her wrists was hands down the most painful thing she's ever experienced in her entire life. Yeah. She can't believe how badly it hurts. And then he whips her. She started to sob, and the more she cried out, the more he would whip her. After what feels like forever, he stops whipping her, and he goes upstairs, leaving her alone. So she tries to calm down and look around as much as she can from the little slit at the bottom of the blindfold, Mm -hmm. but she can't see very much. She can see that the floor is cement. Um, She can see there's a table near her that has a stack of porn magazines on it, and she realizes it's all S&M and bondage. But the thing is, 
Colleen said she was so naive and inexperienced that she didn't know what bondage or really any kind of sexual kink was. Yeah. So in her mind, it's it was definitely porn, but with like very scary, Pictures. violent elements to yeah. it. One of the magazines is open to a page of a nude woman blindfolded and thoroughly bound with rope and suspended from the ceiling, similar to the way that Colleen is. And then all of a sudden she realizes she isn't alone in the room. <gasps> oh my God. She's straining to look around and try to see who is in there with her. And then she sees it's the man and the woman who kidnapped her having sex on the floor a few feet in front of her. Oh my God. I thought it was going to be another girl or something. That is so horrific. It's all horrific. <laughs> every, every option was horrific. So I want to switch gears and tell you very briefly who these kidnappers are. The man is a 22-year-old named Cameron Hooker. His birthday is November 5th, so he's a Scorpio. A mother flipping Scorpio. Mm -hmm. And his wife is a 19-year-old named Janice. They had an eight-month-old baby, and they lived in this house that they had brought Colleen to, which was located in Red Bluff, California. A 22-year-old and a 19-year-old. You were a child. Yep. So they had picked her up in Red Bluff. And then they drove around for hours and hours. So she, you know, at this, I, I can, we know now, like obviously where they were located, but at that time she's thinking they could be in a different Anywhere. state right now. It, she has no idea where they are. So they had basically driven around aimlessly to disorient her. Mind game. Yeah. Did it give you what her birthday was? The 19 year old wife? Uh -uh. I couldn't find it. And that's all the information I'm going to provide on them. I didn't bother researching who the hell these people were or their backstories because who cares? This story is not about them. This is one of the most incredible survival stories I have ever heard. So Colleen deserves all of our focus and attention, period. 100%. So after the couple finished, Janice went upstairs and Cameron unhooked Colleen's wrists and then guided her into another box on the floor. This one is roughly the size of her body. He made her lay down in the box and he strapped her arms and legs into the corners, into restraints. There was a hole in the top of the box that her head went through. So her body is like fully inside the box and restrained, but then her head is sitting on the outside of it. Does that mm -hmm. kind of make sense? Then he takes the head box and places it over her head, clamping it shut again. And then he took himself up to bed and let her lay like that all night. She's completely frozen in the position he left her. She can't move. She certainly can't escape. She can barely breathe and she's obviously petrified. The following morning, when Cameron came down to the basement, Colleen said she was something that was beyond exhaustion. Yeah. She couldn't move all night, but she was exhausted because she spent the night gasping for air. So it felt like such a relief when he removed the head box and took her out of the body box. But the relief was short-lived because he placed her on a table. He bolted her wrists and ankles down. He put the head box back on her head and began torturing her. So Colleen's friends and family knew within a day that something was very wrong. She had never made it to her destination. She didn't call any friends or family and everyone knew that she had been hitchhiking. So right away, her roommates go to the Eugene Police Department and file a missing persons report. But they had nothing to go off of. Like, I mean, they don't know anything. So Colleen's family ends up traveling to Eugene and they spent several weeks going up and down the route that they knew Colleen was traveling the day that she disappeared. They passed out flyers. They stopped at every gas station and diner they passed, asking if anyone had seen this girl. They were looking for any and every clue that someone might have come into contact with her. 
And every police department that they passed in the 400 miles between Eugene and Westwood, her family would stop and file a missing persons report. And nothing came of it. Colleen's family feels like looking back, the police did what they could with what they had to go off of. Of course. Which was essentially nothing. So they they really don't fault the police for anything. No one, yeah, no one's to blame in that department. Colleen's dad, Jack, said that most of the route that they would travel was just empty farmland off of the highway, mostly rundown farms or abandoned barns. And every time that they would pass a building, he would think to himself, is she in that one? And once during this time, Colleen's family stayed overnight at a motel in Red Bluff, which they later learned was literally around the corner from the home that she was being held in. That was beyond. So after several weeks of doing this route over and over and over again, her family had to go back home, Mm -hmm. back to their normal lives. There wasn't anything they could do. And then after a few months, they sort of sadly assumed that she had been killed. It's awful. So they began the the grieving process and kind of, I don't want to say moved on, but just they began, they accepted it and started to grieve her loss. For Colleen, she said the first three months were a blur. She was fully nude at all times, and she was locked into the head and body boxes for roughly 20 hours a day, only being let out briefly to eat, drink, or use the bathroom, or, of course, to be tortured some more. And by bathroom, I mean she was only allowed to use a bedpan in the corner of the room, and Cameron would watch her the whole time without blinking. She said she had no concept of time, She didn't know if it had been days or weeks. She never knew what time of the day it was. Her only clue was the weather. Being down in a dank basement, she could feel in the afternoons it would get really hot. And at night it would get pretty chilly. But otherwise, she was as disoriented as she could possibly be. Cameron tortured her in various forms. Sometimes he would suspend her by the wrists and whip her. Sometimes he would burn her nipples with a hot poker. Sometimes he would zap her with live wires. Sometimes he sodomized her. Sometimes he sexually assaulted her orally or with objects. Sometimes he would put what he led her to believe was a loaded gun in her mouth, only to pull the trigger to see her reaction when she realized it wasn't loaded. And sometimes he would put her on this horrific, archaic-looking, homemade stretching device. Her arms would be bound above her head, her feet at the bottom of the table, and then he would crank the handle and she would slowly be stretched apart from the middle. She said one time he stretched her so significantly, her breast became concaved in her chest plate. Oh, God. Oh, my God. And her lungs were so taut that she couldn't inhale. This went on every single day. There was literally not a single day that he didn't come down and do things to her. She said Cameron taunted her as he tortured her and threatened to cut her vocal cords if she yelled out. She said all she wanted was to scream, but the same voice that spoke to her in the gas station bathroom that day spoke to her again and said, he's serious, he'll really do it, do not make a sound. So she never did. Every single time he tortured her, she never once made a sound. She would ask him every day, when are you going to let me go? And every day he would respond pretty soon. And eventually she just stopped asking. Then one day he tells her she's getting her very own room. 
He built a tiny room underneath the basement stairs and he allowed her to stay in there free of boxes and blindfolds. She said that she had spent all of this time feeling essentially like she'd gone blind because she never had, she, she didn't ever not have a blindfold on her. Even when her eyes weren't covered, there wasn't any natural light in the basement. So when she first walked into this little space under the stairs, which by the way is barely big enough for an adult to stand in, she could barely comprehend the light bulb. It was so blinding and upsetting to her senses that it took her quite a while to get used to it. But then Cameron gave her a Bible to read and that brought her a lot of comfort. So when she wasn't being tortured, Cameron would give her weird tasks to do in this little room she was in like one time he gave her a bunch of walnuts to like shell for him sometime after getting moved into this small space cameron took her upstairs to his and janice's bedroom he tied colleen's legs and arms to each corner of the bed and then cameron and janice sat on either side of her and then without warning cameron rapes her and janice was furious And Colleen could hear them arguing after Cameron had put her back down under the stairs. Apparently before the kidnapping, Janice wanted to have another baby. And Cameron was like, fine. But if you have another baby, then I get to have a slave. Oh my God. And I guess Janice was like, cool, let's shake on that. (laughs) But apparently vaginal intercourse was sacred. So Janice made him promise that under no circumstances would he ever partake in that with his slave vaginal intercourse was saved just for his wife but i guess when he brought colleen upstairs presumably i guess to force some kind of threesome on her he got carried away and he raped her so now janice was pissed and cameron was trying to beg her forgiveness and he swore it would never happen again but it did he started raping colleen almost daily he would just do it when his wife wasn't home and he always used a condom so that he would never so that he would never get her pregnant eight months into captivity so this is january of 1978 cameron takes her blindfold off and shows her a piece of paper he tells her to read it carefully and then to sign it at the bottom it's a contract that commits her to being cameron's personal slave for the rest of her life by signing it she's agreeing to a number of things some of which are she'll never wear underwear she would be available and willing to fulfill any and all desires he had and that she would maintain her physique for his exclusive use. And she asked him, what happens if I don't sign it? And he said, I'll make you wish you had. And obviously after being horrifically abused, raped and tortured every day for the last eight months, she believes him. Yeah, of course. But on top of that, he also explained to her that this is bigger than him. He says that he is a part of an organization, an underground slave trade called The Company. He said if she didn't sign it or if she ever violated her contract, the company would find her, nail her hands to a wooden board and leave her to rot. Then they would track down each of her family members and torture and kill them one by one. So she signs the paper. Apparently because he thinks this is a valid contract, therefore she's contractually obligated to stay forever. Cameron feels comfortable letting her do more normal stuff, like come upstairs into the main area of the home to cook and clean, and sometimes even be present when guests came over to the house. And obviously she was allowed to wear clothes when she was up there because other people would see her. She was forbidden to speak unless spoken to first, and she was never allowed to look Cameron in the eye or call him by his name. She could only refer to him as sir or master, and she had to call Janice ma'am. 
Janice was not on board with this new development. She treated Colleen as though she were the other woman and not actually someone who was kidnapped and enslaved. So after about a year of this, Colleen said she had accepted the fact that she was never going to escape and that this is what her life was like now. But at least she wasn't forced to stay in those boxes anymore. However, that also turned out to be not true. Cameron moved the family to a mobile home, uh, which obviously did not have a basement. So he needed to construct a place to put Colleen when he wasn't abusing her. So he builds a large solid bed frame to put his water bed on. And then within the bed frame, he constructs a smaller coffin sized box with a small door to crawl in and out of. But this was so shallow and small, it, it was barely the size of a coffin. Yeah. Like a coffin is a lot roomier. And the door alone was barely large enough for an adult to crawl through. So if you're standing at the foot of the bed, there's just a tiny square door in the center. And so she would have to push herself in. And when she'd come out, she'd have to like shimmy her feet out. He would leave Colleen in this box for 23 hours a day, only removing her to abuse her or feed her. He left a bedpan inside of the box near her feet, but the space was so small that in order to use the bedpan, she would have to hook her foot onto the corner and slowly shimmy it up towards her butt. Then she'd have to shimmy it out from under her and push it back down towards her feet and wait 23 hours before he would let her out and empty it. It was also sweltering during the summer months. It could get up to 100 degrees inside of the box. And even though he had carved holes into the sides of the box and secured fans to try, try to circulate air, it didn't do anything to cool her down. She says today things like bathroom smells and the sounds of fans going are so triggering to her and it just puts her right back in the box. Obviously being underneath the bed, she could also hear everything the couple did in their bed and she learned very quickly that his torture methods were not only reserved for her, but he regularly inflicted this on Janice as well. Colleen felt like she finally understood what had been happening he had been doing these things to Janice. She was fed up. And the agreement was, if you stop doing this to me, you can find a slave to do yeah. this to. But really what happened is kidnapping Colleen actually just made him feel more empowered. So the abuse for both women only became worse over time. When Janice gave birth to their second baby, Colleen was laying underneath the bed the whole time she was in labor and during the birth. And then when she heard the baby crying, Cameron took Colleen out of the box to show her the baby. And then he put her back in. After the baby was born, Janice needed help and had convinced Cameron to let Colleen out more. So she began spending more time out of the box than in cleaning and cooking and helping care for the kids. They told people that she was just like a sort of live-in nanny. And because she was terrified of this organization killing her and her family, she tried to be as convincing as possible in order to stay safe. So no one in their lives really questioned it. And then when the kids got a little bit older, at nighttime, they would say goodbye to her and the kids were told that their nanny went home, but really she just Some went the underneath bed. the box. She was allowed to start using the real bathroom, but she was chained to the wall the whole time so that she couldn't go out the window. She was allowed to go for a 15 minute walk around the neighborhood by herself though, every day. But not go to the bathroom by herself. Yeah. So it's- That's very I bizarre. Mean, not that we can make sense of anyone's- you know, yeah. mental states who does this kind it of thing, but, crazy. but it was, it was really confusing, That's bizarre. but she never during these 15 minute walks outside by herself, 
she never even considered running because she's terrified. She's ter- What is she going to do? Yeah. Four years into her captivity, Cameron does something that uh, unusual is putting it lightly. I, I mean, unusual for him or unusual it's, for it's, life. It's just <laughs> crazy. Yeah. He tells Colleen to call her family in Riverside and tell them that she's coming for a visit. He said this was the first time ever that the company had approved a slave's contact with loved ones. And they were doing it because Colleen had proved herself to be trustworthy, so they felt she deserved a reward. So Cameron drives Colleen the eight hours to Riverside straight to her dad's front door. The whole drive, he's reiterating this to her over and over and over again. The company is watching her family, their phones have been tapped, and they'll know immediately if she goes to the police or tells her family the truth. So they arrive at her dad's home, her family comes running out to greet them, and I mean, they're totally shocked. They were just shocked to even hear from her, and now she's really here. The last that they had seen her, she she was a little bit fuller. Mm -hmm. Now she was skin and bones. Her hair was a mess. She didn't seem to be bathed and her clothes were clearly handmade. All things that made no sense for the Colleen that they knew four years ago. And the worst part, Colleen introduced Cameron to her family as her boyfriend. But what's even crazier is that Cameron only stayed for a few minutes. Long enough that her family was like, well, he's quiet. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that she would have dated, but I guess that was years ago. And... Cameron leaves Colleen there overnight. He tells her that he wants to give them privacy for their their visit and he'll be back tomorrow. This really just shows that Cameron knew the power that he had over her. So he probably got off on this idea that he could rape and torture and hold this woman in captivity, but then also take her to the very place full of the very people who could potentially snap her out of it or take her from him. And yet he knew that in the end, it would work out in his favor. Just dangling a carrot in front of her head, her face. And this really reminded me of the Denise Huskin story, this mind game. That, For sure. With the you know, company. These horrible, yeah, with this company that's yeah. like, you know, it's bigger than me. It's it's not just there's all these people watching you yeah. and they're going to get you if you do it. This. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it reminded me of that me a too. lot. But isn't that just crazy? Like, she's... Com- thing is the most disturbing is- thing I've ever heard. She is completely alone with her family for the first time in four years of being tortured and enslaved. I mean, experiencing what she's been through is unimaginable, but then I cannot comprehend what it must have felt like to have your captor drive you to your family's door and then leave you there for an overnight stay. From her family's perspective, they're like, oh, so she's in a cult. Yes. Like they just were like, that's, that would explain her dropping off the face of the earth and showing up years later, looking dirty and disheveled in handmade clothes with During her that boyfriend. Time. Yeah, it was. So that's what they chalked it up to. Her sister, Bonnie got a weird feeling the moment Colleen and Cameron arrived. She said Cameron was such a weird and nerdy guy. Everything about him seemed like the opposite of who she knew Colleen to date in the past. So she started badgering Colleen with questions right away. Where have you been? Why haven't you called? We thought you died. So what the hell is going on? Why are you dating this nerd? But Colleen was pretty tight-lipped. She didn't volunteer anything except to say that they lived out in the country. Then their stepmom pulled Bonnie aside and was like, cool it with the questioning. She's clearly fragile. All that matters is she's alive and she's here. 
We'll figure out all the details later. We don't want to ask too much in case it spooks her and she takes off. So Bonnie stopped and the family spent the next 24 hours catching up, taking photos, filling Colleen on all of the things that she had missed in the last four years. And for Colleen, she said the whole visit, she was so close to telling the truth. It was on the tip of her tongue the entire time. But she was so terrified of Cameron and completely believed that the company was real and watching. So she didn't say anything. Cameron came back the next day to pick her up. And someone asked if they could take a photo of Colleen and Cameron together. Oh, my God. In their minds, this is a celebratory experience. And this is supposedly her boyfriend. So why not document it? Yeah. When it was time to go, Bonnie said she had this overwhelming urge to grab her sister and say, she's staying. He can go, but she stays. But she was worried that her stepmom was right. So she ignored her gut and waved them off believing that they'd see her again soon. But later, Bonnie said, this was a perfect example of why we should always listen to our gut instincts because they didn't see or hear from Colleen for another three and a half years. And I I don't want to be judgmental of her family because nobody knew what was really going on. And of course, no one had any idea what was to come. So they thought that they were building trust so that Colleen would feel safe to leave the cult and come back to them. But in hindsight, Colleen's dad, Jack, says he kicks himself to this day for not writing down Cameron's license plate. Because as soon as enough time went by that they knew she wasn't going to come back, he could have easily had the license plate traced directly to Cameron's home. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, Cameron is a sociopath. And like any seasoned abuser, he would flip-flop on the things he allowed Colleen so that she never knew what to expect and she would be extra grateful for the smallest of gestures. So after his huge gesture of driving her to her family and giving her a 24-hour visit, they got back to Red Bluff and he started taking back all of the freedoms that she had gotten used to and she now went back to spending 23 hours a day in the box under the bed. This went on for three more years. The box. The box. 23 hours a day in the box. And then in early 1984, Janice started to do something that she had never done before. When the kids were at school and Cameron was at work, she would let Colleen out of the box. They would sit at the table and read the Bible together and slowly over time developed some type of camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And when Cameron was home, he started to slowly give Colleen more and more freedom again. He started letting her sleep on the living room floor instead of inside of the box. And eventually, he even let her get a job cleaning at a nearby motel. He needed the money. No, she kept her money. This guy. For whatever reason, I don't know what spurred this on, Janice's feelings towards Colleen and this entire situation start shifting. She starts to treat Colleen more as a sister wife and less of as the other woman. The enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she actually ends up confessing to her pastor at church how Colleen came to be in their home. But she sort of twists the truth and she makes it sound like it's more of a love triangle rather than a kidnapping turned for slavery. And her pastor is like, that is not good and not something God would ever be chill God with. Is not down with this. No, you need to get this woman out of your home. So Janice... After her pastor says this, she gets in her car and goes directly to Colleen's motel and sits her down and explains that the company is not real. 
the reality that Cameron has convinced her that there is this major organization ready and waiting to kill Colleen's entire family is not true in the least. She tells her the slave contract is not valid in any way. And that if Colleen were to successfully run away, there is literally nothing Cameron could do about it. Colleen said that she had a full breakdown hearing this. She had spent seven and a half years in captivity, terrified for her life every moment, terrified for her loved ones. Cameron had abused, tortured, and raped her so consistently that she came to believe everything that he said. So now hearing this was all based on a lie and looking back at that visit that she had had with her family, it was just unbearable knowing she truly was safe that day and that all they had to do was call the cops and Cameron would have been arrested then and there. Yeah, it would have been nice if this woman had filled her in earlier, but she was also a victim, so. Janice tells her that she's going to help her get back to Riverside, back to her family. She just needs one thing from Colleen. She asks that Colleen not go to the police because she wants to give Cameron the opportunity to change and become the family man that she wants him to be. Oh my God, honey. And of course, what the hell is Colleen going to say? No. Yeah. She won't change. He's not going to (laughs) change. So she agrees that she, she won't go to the police. Okay. So on August 10th, 1984, Janice drives Colleen to the bus station and she drops her off. Colleen calls her dad and tells him that she's coming home. She doesn't tell him the truth about anything. Just I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. And then just before boarding the bus, Colleen had this overwhelming desire to call Cameron at work and tell him what she was doing. Not because she felt owned by him, but because she wanted to hear his reaction when he learned she was leaving forever. So she calls and tells him she's leaving and he no longer has control over her or her life. And he cries like a baby and begs her not to go. So she hangs up on him and gets on the bus. She said the feeling of freedom was so overwhelming, it's almost indescribable. The entire bus ride, she was beaming and kept looking around at everyone on the bus, wondering if they could feel the joy radiating off of her. When Colleen is safely reunited with her family, she tells them that she has been kidnapped and held captive all these years, but nothing more. Her mindset was, this monster stole seven and a half years of my life. I'm ready to leave this behind me. And I don't want to give him ownership of even one more moment of my my life. And obviously her family's in a terrible spot. They're so grateful she's alive and home. They're horrified to learn she was actually captive this whole time. You know, they're confused about the visit from three and a half years ago. And they obviously want her to go to the police. But she's so fragile that they focused more on just supporting her recovery and save their questions and concerns for another time. After her return, Janice and Colleen spoke on the phone a few times, checking in on each other. Understandably, Colleen had the most difficult time acclimating to her new normal. She had severe PTSD. She felt damaged. And she didn't know if anyone could ever love her or see beauty within her now. She had been violated and degraded in every way you could possibly think of. So she had no idea how she could possibly fall in love with a man or be intimate with one. She couldn't stand to be alone. So for the first few weeks of freedom, she would go with her dad to his work every single day and just sit there and wait for him to be done. Sitting there was better than being home alone. But after about three months, she got a job and she made a big effort to try to get some autonomy back. And she even started dating. Oh my God. 
all Three the w- months. Yeah. Wow. Good for, I mean, good for her. All the while Colleen is like, there is no way I'm going to the police. This is behind me now. I just want to forget that that ever happened. But right around that three month mark into freedom, Janice calls Colleen to inform her that Cameron hasn't changed. Surprise, surprise. So she took the kids and left him. And not only that, she went to the police and reported his crimes. She told Colleen the police were on their way to speak to her and she needed Colleen to cooperate and tell the truth. So it turns out, in addition to telling the cops the truth about Colleen's experience, Janice also told them that she was, Colleen was not Cameron's only victim. Apparently, 16 months prior to Colleen's abduction, they had picked up a hitchhiker named Marie Elizabeth Spanicky, who went by the name Marlis. They did the same exact thing to her, got her comfortable, and then put the box over her head in the back seat, then took her to their basement and hung her up by her wrists and... Apparently, Cameron had had the idea to cut her vocal cords in the beginning. That way, she could never make any sound while he tortured her. But as he started to do it, he realized he didn't know what he was doing, and he accidentally kills her instead. So Janice helped him dispose of the body by digging a shallow grave off of a random highway out in the middle of Shasta County. Then a little over a year later, they repeat the same process with Colleen. When Colleen learned of this, it changed her perspective of the times when he taunted her to make a sound and threatened to cut her vocal cords if she did. And that voice in her head insisting, don't make a sound because he'll really do it. She says, I mean, I'm not trying to disagree with her. She she became very religious through this process and she believes that that was God. And I'm like, girl, I think it was Marliz talking to you. 100%. Colleen said that she never heard of Marliz. Cameron and Janice never mentioned her. But she always wondered about a photo of a young brunette woman Cameron kept near the box that she was stored in under the bed. And when police showed her photos of Marliz, Colleen confirmed that was the woman in the photo that wow. Cameron kept in the box. Yeah. Unfortunately, the authorities gave Janice full immunity in exchange for leading them to the location of Marliz's remains, but they never managed to find the remains. So without a body... There was no way to charge him with anything related to Marliz. Yeah. That means Colleen is the only the focus. chance yeah. at, at, at putting him behind bars. And she doesn't want to because yeah. this is behind her. When the police searched the Hooker family home, they found all the torture devices that the woman said that they would find. They found photos that Cameron had taken of both Janice and Colleen in the nude and in the midst of being tortured by him. And worst of all, they found something that Janice and Colleen didn't even know about. In the furthest back corner of a rundown shed on the property, the police found a project that Cameron had been working on. He was slowly digging an underground dungeon-like torture chamber that would accommodate several victims at once. So roughly a year after Colleen's escape, Cameron's criminal trial began. The case landed on the desk of the only female attorney in the prosecutor's office, a woman named Christine McGuire. She also happened to be the only female attorney in the entire county. So this chick was like ready to go after this monster and she was determined to win this case at any cost. She needed to convince the jury of the true horrible severity of the crimes against Colleen. So she decided to bring in the torture devices to be on display in the courtroom. The body box from under the bed the head box, the various whips, chains, gags, and what was especially shocking but also effective, 
was the fact that Christine took a photo from the home, a picture Cameron had taken of Colleen in the nude, blindfolded and suspended from the ceiling by her wrists. She blew the photo up to a large poster size and positioned it in a place where the jurors didn't have a choice but to look at it every day. It was crucial to not only show the jury the items up close and personal, but for them to see how they were used. So Christine got volunteers who laid down on the body box to show what a cramped space it was, as well as wearing the head box for a few minutes. Seeing these torture devices up close made a massive difference for the jury. But obviously, a successful conviction ultimately fell on Colleen's shoulders. She had agreed to speak to to the police initially, like Janice had asked, and she reluctantly told them what she needed to tell them, but she really did not want to testify in court. She was, she dug her heels in when it came to just pretending none of this happened. She just wanted this Mm -hmm. to be behind her in every way possible. She had, you know, gotten a job. She now had a boyfriend and she was beginning to feel like genuinely happy again. So. The idea of sitting in a courtroom for days on end, reliving every terrible moment of her captivity, not only in a room full of strangers, but also in front of Cameron himself, she just didn't want to. I and actually I, I don't blame her. I totally I get it. Want to do I that. totally get it. And the jury seeing blown up photos of her being tortured, it's I like, know. can you, that would be, that I could see how that would feel humiliating and so degrading. Janice testified against her husband, though. Good. She explained that she had been with Cameron since she was 15 years old. So this was all she knew. Yeah. She didn't know what a normal relationship was like, and she definitely didn't know what a healthy sexual experience was like. She said for years prior to kidnapping Colleen, Janice was Cameron's abuse victim. He would torture and degrade her as well, even suspending her from the ceiling when she was heavily pregnant. She also testified to all of the things that she witnessed Cameron do to Colleen as well. But luckily, Colleen came around and she agreed to testify. She accepted that she needed to do this to prevent a monster like this from walking free. She spent three days on the stand detailing every moment of every day from the time she was kidnapped to the time that she escaped seven and a half years later. Hearing her account and what went through her mind and how she coped was so unbelievable. But many reporters and even members of the jury were a little confused by her demeanor. Colleen was detached and emotionless as she detailed everything. She answered questions quickly and to the point. And that was just a very jarring thing for people listening. I mean, because they expected her to be an emotional basket case, obviously. I mean, it was making everyone emotional even hearing this, but then to hear it from the girl herself who seemed very unbothered by it. Yeah, she's just trying to she's just trying to power through it. Obviously, today we understand she's been through such a horrific such a horrific trauma. You can't predict or understand how she chooses to cope with it. But at the time, this was a really big issue for the prosecution because if the jury didn't empathize with Colleen, that was very bad. So Christine did her best to preface to the courtroom that it's going to be understandable for the people on the outside of this crime to expect the victim to be a certain way. But that as they listened to Colleen speak, they needed to remember that she had spent almost eight years mastering the ability to hold everything in and be emotionless. Her ability to do that is why she survived this ordeal. So she can't suddenly switch that off just to convince a group of strangers that her horror story was real. Yeah. But then from Colleen's perspective, she said that she was terrified to take the stand. She was hyper aware of her emotional state on the stand. 
She was worried that if she allowed herself to become emotional, it would be like opening the floodgates and she'd get off track or forget crucial details. And she knew sending this monster to prison was heavily reliant on her testimony. So in her mind, she's like, all right, I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm going to get through this. Cameron's defense turned out to be more offensive and upsetting than anyone expected. He admitted that, yes, he did kidnap her, and initially he held her against her will. But eventually he let her go, and she made the decision to stay because she had grown to love him and enjoy what he did to her. He then said that Janice and Colleen had fallen in love behind his back and decided to orchestrate this big story to get him out of the picture, and that this is ultimately a case of two scorned women punishing an innocent man. Exactly. The defense also provided phone records that showed Colleen made several phone calls to the Hooker landline in the months after her escape, each one lasting quite a while, but many of them taking place when Janice was out of town, which means Colleen was allegedly talking to Cameron. Oh. The defense also introduced love letters written by Colleen to Cameron during her captivity, stating that she loved him, she was grateful to him, she loved being his slave. She wants to give him a son one day and that she believes his making her a slave has made her a better person. She's just telling him what he wants to hear so he allows her more privileges, I'm sure. So as wild as this seems today, the concept of Stockholm Syndrome was not widely understood or even recognized at that time. So the idea that Colleen could feel and express any positive feelings towards Cameron while also telling the truth about the way that she had suffered at his hands, it was just almost too far-fetched. So I found a short quote from an article from psychmechanics.com that says the following in regards to Stockholm Syndrome. It says, quote, Typically, the captor will threaten the victim with dire consequences. They'll threaten them with violence or death. The victim instantly feels powerless and helpless. They start thinking of their imminent death. They've lost everything. They're at the end of their rope. In this scenario, the victim's mind exaggerates any small act of kindness or mercy by the captor. Moments ago, they were threatening them with death, and now they're being merciful. This contrast effect magnifies the small acts of kindness by the captors in the victim's mind. The result is that the victim is overly grateful to the captor for being kind, feeding them, letting them live, and not killing them. So that's just sort of like a brief explanation for what it is. We very much understand that now, but at that time it was just like, maybe there's truth to what he's saying, or, you know, she's lying somehow about Mm -hmm. something. The jury understandably had a really hard time comprehending the level of freedom that Colleen experienced, like being allowed those 15-minute walks by herself, that one time seeing her family, and then eventually getting a job. It's very bewildering that she didn't run the first chance she got, but they had all the information that they needed to reach a verdict. The jury deliberated for two days and found him guilty. Cameron Hooker was sentenced to 104 years in prison. It's been almost 45 years since Colleen got into Cameron Hooker's car. Janice was asked to cooperate for this documentary, but she declined and said, quote, No matter what I say, the media would twist my words and that would portray me as a violent person. I am the gentlest person and I always have been. She now goes by the name Janice Lashley and is a registered associate social worker and mental health professional. Holy moly. Cameron Hooker was up for parole in 2015, but was denied and will not be eligible for parole until the year 2030. 
When he was denied parole, the judge told Cameron it was disgusting that he would have the audacity to waste everyone's time and valuable resources when he has spent all these years in prison making no effort to improve himself, understand himself, or try to seek any care that could help him change. In a new development, due to the way COVID-19 has impacted things, Cameron is now in the legal process of determining whether or not he qualifies for early parole. His next hearing is set for March 1st, 2022. Colleen was held captive for a total of 2,634 days. She was raped, tortured, and stored in a coffin-like box every single one of those days. She has endured unspeakable acts of pure evil, but she survived it. She was allowed to read the Bible during her captivity, and she credits her relationship to God for getting her through. She said when she would reach breaking points, she would think, I just need this to end. I, I can't do this any longer. And then she said that she could hear God speak to her and say in the most soothing, comforting voice, but how do you know tomorrow won't be better? You have to hold on. And so she would hold on, hoping for a brighter day tomorrow. Colleen says that she shares a kinship with Marliz. She thinks about her and prays that justice will be served for her and her family. But because Janice wasn't able to locate Marliz's remains, no one has ever been charged with a crime related to her disappearance. Two and a half years after her escape, Colleen gave birth to her daughter, Danielle. She said the moment that she laid eyes on her baby, she fell in love, and that was the happiest day of her life. Romantically speaking, Colleen has struggled quite a bit. She's been married four times, and she says that through no fault of her husband's, it's just a really hard trauma to cope with. Of course. But at the time of the documentary being filmed, Colleen was happily married to a great man that she said supported her in wonderful ways. Wow. Because of the physical injuries Cameron inflicted on her, Colleen will likely be on pain medication for the rest of her life. She's had multiple corrective surgeries, but there's so much damage to her spine that causes significant daily pain. So she has a daily reminder of what she's been through. Not only did Cameron and Janice steal seven and a half years of Colleen's life, but they stole an innocence and a trust that can never be regained. They changed the course of her life forever. But even so, Colleen says that she wishes no harm on anyone, even people like Cameron and Janice. It just isn't in her to want to harm another person. She says people who hear her story often ask, how are you so normal after this? Which really offends and upsets her. So she usually just responds with, well, the crazy person is the one in prison. It goes without saying that Colleen has dealt with severe PTSD and she carries a lot of guilt and anxiety surrounding the affection that she showed Cameron while she was captive. Until one day when she went to a forensic psychiatrist who knew her story and he told her, quote, it really doesn't matter what you said or what you did while you were in captivity. You did everything right because you survived and you lived. She is the definition of a survivor, and she hopes that sharing her story and her desire to live life to the fullest might allow others who have been through similar traumas to believe they too can move on and enjoy life again. So that is the story of Colleen Stan, and I just want to say this last part about Cameron's current legal situation. Oh, great. Cameron Michael Hooker is a threat to society. At the time of this recording in 2021, he's only 68 years old. He is plenty young and capable of doing more unspeakable acts to any number of people. 
he should never be released from prison. So we're going to add a link on our Instagram page so that you can sign the petition to keep Cameron Hooker in prison. Please, 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 please consider signing it. It takes two seconds. Every time a criminal is up for parole, more often than not, their victims have to advocate to block their release. That means it rips Colleen from her present life and forces her to relive the details of her experience in the hopes that it will convince the legal system to keep her abuser in jail. And she deserves so much more than that. Absolutely. That is the most horrific thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I know. (laughs) I can't even comprehend that a human being went through even a day of that. Yeah. And the fact that she went through it for what, eight years, almost eight years. Mm -hmm. And I abbreviated a lot. Yeah. And I I left out a lot. I don't think I, I, and then that's the worst. I don't think I could have handled hearing more. I could barely hear. I couldn't handle that. Yeah. And the fact that she endured it every single day is. And like survived it. Just makes me so emotional. And I got through this whole thing without crying, which I didn't think I was going to be able to do. Listening to her tell her own story was really really amazing because she's she's I totally understand why she gets offended when people are like why are you so normal she seems she does not (laughs) seem like she went through what she went through yeah and it's you know she she doesn't when she's talking about her experience she's not at all trying to pretend like she's you know unaffected by it she just she says that there are things that she wants to experience and she wants to enjoy life. So she's not going to allow this thing to just control, control the rest of her life. That's like the ultimate display of strength. Yeah. Through and through. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and please sign yeah. that petition. We'll be sharing that everywhere. Yeah. Regularly okay. <laughs> until that day. All right. All love, right you. love you. <laughs> Bye. Oh God. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina. See you next week.